Hello and welcome to the NBA Next podcast presented by Trek. I am Scott Allen and I'm joined by Keith Smith. We are here to talk about what is next financially in the NBA. We're recording this on Friday morning and we pushed this back, Keith, because you were finalizing how to break up the Chicago Bulls, uh, which we dropped yesterday afternoon. And let's dive into that because, you know, they're more and more in the news. Is Levine going to go? What do you do with DeRozan? What do you do with Caruso? Vucevic? Um, so first, immediate takeaways from going down this path of how to uh, break up the Bulls. Yeah, and it's interesting. We we run the article yesterday, and then they, they had a big upset win over the Milwaukee Bucks without DeRozan and, and Levine. So e- either we gave them the motivation for that win – uh, or they're like, hey, we can win without these guys. Let's definitely move them. So we'll 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 see. I uh, I like to pretend my words have that much power in my life uh, sometimes. <clears throat> but as I got into this, my number one biggest takeaway is if you're the Bulls, you can't take half measures with this. Trading Zach Levine is I'm not going to say it's a bad idea. I think it's fine. But if you trade Zach Levine and then say, let's keep everybody else and see what it looks like. And unfortunately, that's kind of the message the Bulls are giving teams. Uh, we can get into that in a minute here. That to me is not good enough because that's a half measure. You know, it's not you're not going to trade Levine and return such a good package of players that are going to help you right now today in season that it's worth keeping DeMar DeRozan, Nikola Vucevic, Alex Caruso, and a handful of the other veteran players. It just doesn't make sense. So for me, if you're going to go down this path, go really go down the path. Go all the way down and move out as much of the veteran salary as you can and rebuild around youth, likely draft picks coming in. Uh, Really bottom your team out as much as you can this year to improve your own pick because it's the last time you really have full control over your own pick for a few seasons. So really like get, get in there and, and kind of, you know, uh, rip the bandaid off and, and go forward with a complete rebuild. Yeah. Ripping the bandaid off at this point, it seems like just, just do it. You know, I know that it's not a team that likes to really rip the bandaid off and go mm-hmm. all the way down, but it seems like they're at a crossroads of, do you just play out with what you have and then reset in the next off season, or do you just rip off the bandaid now? You know, you have Caruso keeps coming up more and more of what I'm reading and hearing from a, a value asset. Um, you know, I, I like some of the trades that you have proposed that we'll just tease a little bit at the end here. Um, but this team just seems like they're middling. They only have six wins right now. You know, if you rip the Band-Aid off, you may be able to get into a lottery spot. Maybe they don't necessarily want to, but, you know, my takeaway from from your article here is, yeah, they can reset, but they can still bring in some pieces to not be completely bare covered. You know, similar to what Portland did with, they, they brought back some pieces. Yes, it hasn't necessarily worked out in their favor with injuries with Williams and whatnot, but... Uh, they've at least brought in pieces that they can work around and it's not just, you know, stripping it down to the studs. Yeah. I, I think the challenge the, the like the real challenge for the, uh, the um, gosh, the, the bulls becomes what, what are we trying to 
be. And, and, and I get it. And I'm glad you referenced it. And I referenced it in the piece. Under Jerry Reinsdorf, it's been compete, compete, compete. They've had one year where they, they really locked into the number one overall pick and got Derrick Rose. They, I want to say it's something like the seventh, eighth, ninth worst record that year and had some incredible lottery luck and got Derrick Rose. And that launched them back into being a you know, really good team. And they, they, they were in the mix for a few years there. But the other years where they were bad, right before Artoris Karnisovich took over the front office, they were really bad because they were uh, – it was like a series of bad decisions had gotten them there. It was not intentionally bad. So so when they kind of fell down, it was just because that's where they were at. So now my thing would be, you know, at some point you have to say this is not working. We're not likely to get good enough players back in return for any of our guys that – they're going to turn, you're not going to turn Levine, DeRozan, Vucevic, and crew into better players today that are going to all of a sudden, all right, hey, look at that. Now we're contenders and probably not even a playoff team to be realistic. So for me, it's what's the point in finishing with the eighth, ninth worst record in the league? Just bottom it out. You know, you could bounce back from it very quickly. We've seen Oklahoma City do it. They basically bottomed out, and then two years later, they were on their way back up. We've seen it go the other way with the Detroit Pistons, where they bottomed out a you know a decade ago and uh, still haven't come back up for air yet. So it's it's been a spot where yeah, it gets really you know tricky, but you have to trust that you can handle this. And the best way for in my mind to do that is go pick up young players pick up additional draft assets and move things forward. And especially you'll also have incredible cap flexibility because this team as it stands right now for at least next season and probably the season after they're pretty well capped out because of the presence of uh, Levine and Vucevic uh, contracts on the book. So those guys are, you know, they're 60 plus million each and then approaching 70 million uh, two years from now. So that, that gets really tough uh, to, to figure out. And, it's it, it can be a you know tough pill to swallow, but eventually you got to look at it and say, all right, this is not working. This is not what we want to be. Then the best way sometimes to then make it make it work is to take the pain pain all at once. And the the thing is, Bulls fans are supportive of that. They're ready for it. They they no longer are in a spot where it's like, all right, let's just kind of be what we are. Like they are full on ready to to take the plunge and to rebuild it. Yeah, and like you've said, we've seen teams do it the right way and turn around quite quickly. And, you know, in your piece, you've got four high-value assets from a player standpoint in Caruso, DeRozan, Levine, Vucevic. I mean, those players and those, you know, with what they could contribute, there's going to be a team that is desperate come trade deadline and one of those players or two of those players are going to help those teams into the playoffs. So I would think that they could bring back relatively decent players, but right now it's probably a draft pick situation where they would want to acquire, acquire as many draft picks as possible. Um, Am I reading that wrong? No, I think you're right. I I think the challenge is none of these guys are, you're not getting the Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Kevin Durant type for return in draft picks for these guys because one, teams are sending signs of unless it's a super duper star, we're we're not doing that. 
anymore. Like, like we now with the new apron rules and all that, if we think we have a chance to be pretty good, we can't give every single draft pick away because we're going to need them because we're going to need them to be able to fill out a roster later. Uh, you know, around these guys, even if we are a good team, those picks in the twenties are still very valuable for adding talent. So your, your thing is like, like the proposed Levine trade, and we, we're, we're not going to go into in-depth details on all of these because uh, we want people to go read the article, but the Levine trade, my idea was get a young player. And then by virtue of rerouting another player in a th- three team deal, uh, you can pick up probably a couple draft picks. They're not going to be great draft picks. They're they're going to be you know, probably in the late teens, twenties, but that's fine. You're you're just looking to rebuild your base uh, with this. Maybe you push the draft picks. You can get out a little bit and hope that the team you're getting them from is not so good in the you know uh, upcoming seasons and those kind of things. And that gets you to a spot. And as much of that is about like a guy like Zach Levine. Very good player, borderline all-star kind of guy, but teams are looking at and saying, eh, that's $180 million uh, that we got to take on the books for the next, you know, this, the rest of this year and through uh, the next three seasons. And he's a player who is now, he is, what is he? Gosh, let me make sure I get this right. He's going to be 29 in March. So 29 years old, he'll be in his thirties. He's had some knee issues, even if he's been relatively durable. He's had some issues and that turns into, I just don't know that we can build, you know, fully around this guy. Whereas like someone like Kevin Durant, the Suns were, Hey, we have a team that's ready to win right now today. We'll give up everything under the sun for him. And then we'll let it all sort itself out, you know, in years down the line. Uh, Donovan Mitchell, great player, much younger player than Levine. So at that point it was, all right, we're comfortable giving up everything to go get him. I get, again, I, I misspoke. He's really, he's only about a year and a half younger than Levine, but still it was, you know, doesn't have the health issues, doesn't have all that contracts, not quite as big. So it was, we feel like we're good if we're the Cavs that we can get him and really build around him. So Levine's more of a good player that you're adding in, which to me that goes into a spot where it makes a lot more sense to go somewhere where the team's kind of good already. And then, Levine can help lift them to that next level versus a team taking and saying, all right, we're kind of good, but he's our guy. Now we're building everything around him. I just don't think he's that player. So that that's going to lessen the return a little bit on some of this. But again, the reaction already from the article, normally you propose these kinds of things and the fans of the team you're, you're breaking up are like, you didn't get to give us enough in any of these trades. And in the bulls fans case, it was most of them like, yeah, this seems pretty pretty realistic. I'm all in on an idea like this. So I, I think you know, you not that you you don't do things based off what the fans want, but I do think you have to factor that into some level to understand like are they going to stomach a rebuild? And it's very clear to me, Bulls fans are very ready to go down the rebuild road. Is there any player on the roster that is untouchable that the Bulls would want to keep no matter what to build around? Yeah, I would hope not. Um, you know, as you look at it, there just it isn't the, the the main guys that I think you know should be up for trade are again Levine, DeRozan, Vucevic. They're all older, so you're not building around them as the centerpiece of a team uh, moving forward. Uh, then you've got your kind of your role player guys, but they're good ones. Guys like Caruso, Carter, uh, uh, th- th- those players, uh, Andre Drummond to some extent as a backup. Those guys are all you know good players. Tory Craig as well. Um, but 
you're not building around them. They're role players. Then you get in behind that. It's all young guys. It's, you know, guys like Patrick Williams, who I like Patrick Williams, but he hasn't shown that he's somebody you're building a team around. Uh, Dalen Terry hasn't shown anything as a draft pick. And then it's guys like Kobe White, Io DeSumo. They're, they're okay, but they're not anything, uh, you know, super special, uh, you know, that, that you're saying, all right, these guys are absolutely untouchable. So I would go into this, you know, with a complete open mind of, Yo, all right, we're we're open to talking to anybody and we'll we'll trade anybody on this roster. And then your your next thing becomes a guy like Lonzo Ball. Like if a team wants to do a deal where it's like, hey, we'll take Lonzo, but you you need to take back questionable money on our side, but we'll also give you a draft pick for it. Done. Let's go. Let's move that forward as well. Though these are the kind of things I think the Bulls need to be very open to. Yeah, that was going to be my next question was about the Lonzo Ball situation and how, how do the Bulls handle that? Because, you know, the injury after injury and setback and, you know, it's likely he's not even going to be playing this season again. And then he's got a player option, which he yeah. almost lost. Which he'll definitely be picking up. <laughs> yeah, picking that up for sure. Yeah. So it, it, that's a tricky situation on how to handle it. And, and you answered that, you know, questionable money coming back and, you know, for, you know, who wants the salary dump now. Yeah. Um, but my guess is the bulls would have to probably attach a pick out to, to offset ball because of the unknown of the injury. I, I think if you were trying to straight trade him, you would have to attach a pick, but I think there's a world where you could, Hey, we'll take back, yo, whether it's a draft pick or a young player that needs a change of scenery and a, 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 a worse contract from you uh, for him, like a, a contract that's you know may, maybe a little worse that you need to get out of because maybe it runs a year or two longer or something like that. I think in that kind of world, you've now turned his, it's not that you changed his value. You're just taking back worse value. So you're the one getting paid. That does happen on occasion in the league. But for the most part right now, we're going to see this turn into probably my guess is there's no trade that comes with, with Lonzo ball. It turns into, he just is there. Hopefully he can play next season. And then next season he becomes an expiring $21.4 million contract. And we know it almost doesn't matter if the guy can play it or, or not. An expiring contract is always going to have some level of value to, to some team somewhere. Then that's a small enough number that you can move it very easily. So after this season, when he becomes that expiring deal, then all of a sudden we're in a spot where he can go. And if everything goes well and he can get back on the court and actually show, hey, he can kind of play a little bit. Maybe he's not the same Lonzo he was, but the team that needs a point guard's like, hey, we 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 kind of were willing to take the, the run here and the risk on this then maybe you get a move done that way. So those are the things I think you could see happen with him here. But my guess is the most likely path is it just plays out this year, next year, and then his contract comes off the books in 25, 26, which leads me into something else I did in this course of these, these uh, uh, trades that I made up that I think are things that the bulls should consider if, and if not these trades, it's just get, getting people to think like, this is the idea of the kind of things the Bulls should be doing is you're trying to take on very little money in the future. You don't want to replace all your cap problems with new cap problems. So you're trying to get out of that, create some cap flexibility. And there is a world where if they kind of made a bunch of moves, we could hit the summer 2025 and Chicago could have in, in excess of a hundred million in cap space. And 
if you're the Chicago Bulls with a hundred million in cap space, you're gonna be a free agent player. You know, because and that doesn't necessarily mean signing guys, but that could be trades or however it works now in our new free agency world in the NBA. You could be in the mix because you know, you're Chicago. You're one of the biggest cities in, in the world. You have the franchise history. People do still want to be there and want to play there. So they, they'd be able to be in the mix, which is, again, that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to get them back in the game. Right. Absolutely. Out of all the trades that you did, is there one that you are, you know, higher on than any of the others? Yeah, it's funny because I had a lot of people say, you know, why would the the one of the ones I made up was uh, Zach Levine to the Indiana Pacers uh, in a deal that then would uh, send Buddy Heald off to the Philadelphia 76ers. And in that return, it was Benedict Matherin and, and salary filler in two first round picks, one from the Pacers and one from the Sixers. And I like that trade because that gets them. All right. Matherin's a, a young scorer with upside, but he's got some very real flaws. Uh, he's a little squeezed in the rotation in Indiana because they have a lot of wings and guards. So get him into a place where, hey, you can look at him. And you, you because if you're the Bulls in this scenario, you're not very good. So you can kind of play it out um, where, hey, if he has flaws, let him play through them and figure it out because you're not trying to win games, which the Pacers are. And then from the Pacers' side, um, they have interest in Zach Levine. It's kind of been out there. Um, if you actually go look at the uh, Vegas odds on Zach Levine's next team, the Pacers are, I think, to most people, shockingly high. And I think it's because Indiana knows they can't sign, um, you know, free agents. They're not a free agent destination. So the way they get good players is they trade for them or develop them. And that's exactly what you'd be doing here with Zach Levine. And they have the salary structures where they can kind of support having him uh, throughout the rest of his contract. Uh, there because they're not swimming in bad money or anything so I kind of like that one just just because I think it would be good and that Philly gets a shooter who really helps them and doesn't mess up any of their cap space dreams and plans and strategy and whatever else Daryl Morey's going to do with with that money because Buddy Heald's only on a one-year contract so I think that's um you know, really kind of important as well. So I that that's the one that kind of I I liked quite a bit just because I think it makes a lot of sense for all the teams involved. Yeah, and it's interesting. The Pacers are another team that they don't rip it down. They will yep. do whatever they can to stay in the middle or above. And, you know, they made the trade for, with Sabonis to get Halliburton back, and we all have seen how that's worked out. Um, so I, I'm all for it. I mean, a little bit of a shakeup, and if it and if it helps both teams and it's a win-win, then, you know, kudos for that happening. Uh, any final thoughts with breaking up the Bulls? Well, as we're recording, the Bulls announced Zach Levine's going to be out for a week with foot soreness. So uh, let's see if that's a a real thing or if that's a, uh, hey, we're protecting the asset a little bit. My guess is it's more of a real thing. I also, this is just a good point here, a little little education for folks. And we'll we'll have a piece that will go up probably next week about early trade season. December 15th is when trade season really opens because the vast majority of players who signed contracts over the summer can be traded. Uh, that turns into a, um, uh, the, the rule is anybody who signed in July can't be traded until December 15th. There's a, there's an additional set of restrictions for guys who resign, get a big enough raise with bird rights that they can't be traded till January um, 15th. But 
for the most part, we're, 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 it's like, I figured it out the other day. It's almost like 88% of the league or something becomes trade eligible on um, December 15th, but it's rare. It's not like it's everybody sitting there waiting and they flood the league with trade calls. Uh, it's pretty rare. We get trades, you know, before the end of December, early part of January. So just, just note this Levine trade or really any bulls trades, they're probably not coming for at least another couple of weeks, if not probably closer to a month and more, most likely once we get closer to the trade deadline. All right, let's uh, shift over to another piece that you did last week for us. Uh, expansion series, NBA expansion. We've heard about it. We know it's coming. It's just a matter of when, not if at this point, Um uh, your, your starting was how it actually works. So do you want to give us a real brief synopsis on how expansion works in the NBA? And then, you know, you don't have to get into the nitty gritty details that you went into. I mean, you did some great history. And as I was reading, I was like, wow, totally forgot about that situation. Or, you know, when that team <laughs> you came and me in. Both. <laughs> some I'm like, oh, I feel like they have just been in the league or they've been around longer than that. So uh, quick synopsis on the process that we can expect from the NBA. Well, and I'll also say, Scott, in fairness, the NBA doesn't expand all that often. <laughs> so we, we were much younger men. <laughs> the, right. Hey, you know, outside of the Bobcats, I think we were probably both adults at that point. But the uh, the, the the Vancouver, Toronto years, we, we, we were uh, still, you know, I was I was in high school. And uh, before that, I was like, oh, there's four new teams coming in. Like, um, but what we wanted to do, the expansion stuff is out there. Adam Silver has all but basically said, we're going to expand like he's not he doesn't want to talk details he doesn't want to talk any specifics because it's too early but he's basically said hey when the tv uh, deal is done then we're gonna we're gonna get into expansion so so we said hey let's start talking about expansion so what we did what we're gonna do is run a whole series on this the first uh in the list is just kind of how it works like you said then we're gonna get into um you know, things down the line that are, what are the rules for an expansion draft? What are the protected list rules? How does all this stuff work? What happens with their salary cap? What happens with the draft picks? How does all these things come together for this? So we're going to look at histories. I'm in process. It's, it's taking me a little while, but I'm going to get there. I'm going to get the protected list, at least back through the Toronto, Vancouver draft. So we can examine how did teams treat the protections? on these, these players in these, these uh, um, expansion drafts. What does it look like? Because I think for some people it's, it's go, it's surprising and will be surprising who could be exposed on that. Then once we've kind of laid all that out, we'll get into how long does it take before an expansion team's even good? You know, what about, what about the playoffs being a reality? What about actually them winning in the playoffs? What about becoming a real contender? Then and this is going to be over a series of months, maybe a year. Then we'll start getting into, all right, let's do some mock protected lists, some mock drafts. Let's talk about, because by then we'll start to get more details. 
Are we thinking two teams? Are we thinking four teams? You know, what are we really kind of looking at here? So those will be the things we're really going to, um, you know, dive into on this. So, so I'm super excited and I'm really excited. You guys, you know, give this, uh, you know, it's spot track, have the space to, Hey, let's do this. Let's nerd out about expansion because I think this is something people are really going to enjoy and get excited about. Ditto. And that, and I'm, have not honestly looked into the rules. So I'm looking forward to the actual rules yeah. when you get to it, because I mean, we've seen expansion in the NHL and we know how those rules kind of work in that capacity. So I'm looking forward to when you post about the NBA rules to learn a little bit more myself. Um, you mentioned two teams, four teams. Yeah. I mean, what is the best scenario for the league as far as an influx of money coming in? I mean, should they do a two by two? Should it be a, you know, a staggered bring two in, then a one, then a one, or, you know, one every for the next four years when it does start, what, what's the best process you think? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, and they've done different things in their history. So, you know, let, let's talk, timeline very quickly here just what it might look like right so the tv deal will get done even if the tv deal is signed and then adam silver that day says all right we're starting the expansion bid process the teams aren't starting the next year it's about a two-ish year window um more closer to three years um before teams generally start playing so when when um charlotte or the 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 bobcats to to be clear when they came in to 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 being um what happened with the uh with expansion was they basically said it was about mid uh december they the nba started taking bids in january um well it, let, let me rephrase they basically started taking bids as soon as the hornets left charlotte the original hornets because there was a whole bunch of lawsuits that were coming down the line. And I think the league was like, we got to get in front of this. So no, we'll have another team here. Um, Mid December, they picked Robert Johnson's bid as the winner. January of mid December, 2002, January of 2003, they approved. And then it was about a year later. um, Well, June, June of 2003, they named the team, the Bobcats. And then about a year later, they did the expansion draft and then they started play with the 2004 five season. That was way quicker. The prior prior times when they had expanded Charlotte, Miami, Minnesota, and Orlando back in the late eighties came in. Uh, they were a three year window, the Hornets and heat. They staggered uh, the, these four teams coming in. Then it was a four year window. Minnesota and Orlando joined the year after when Toronto and Vancouver came in, um, they were granted the franchises in February of 1994, it was late June of 95 that they did their expansion draft. And then those teams came in in the 95, 96. So it was really, um, that was, again, it was about a two or three year window uh, before we saw these teams on the floor. So just to give everybody a sense, we're probably looking two to three years. Now to your question, do we go with two? I think if they go with two, we all know it's going to be Seattle and Las Vegas. It's like the worst kept secret in the world right now. So we think that's going to be the way it goes, but there is potential. They could say, do we go with four? And Adam Silver mentioned 
Montreal, Vancouver, Mexico City, um, expanding internationally. Then there's uh, Louisville, Kansas City, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Virginia Beach, San Diego. These these cities have all been in the mix in the past for wanting their own NBA team. Some stronger than others, and some have pushed harder than others. So what I think we're really looking at is they know they've got two teams right away. Um, they basically know they're probably getting somewhere between three and four billion for each team. We're going to talk about what a couple teams just sold for. Uh, expansion teams always go for a little bit more, um, just because that's how you pay to get into the league. So I think we're looking at four billion, if not four and a half, maybe even approaching five, depending on when the timeline comes in. Um, now, if we go back to 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 your question of two versus four and how um, there's a little bit of mixed reporting in the history. It sounds like back in the eighties, the league initially wanted to only do two cities, but when they found the other two cities, um, it was like, we can't pass this up. We want teams in Florida and they wanted to spread them out. So that became Orlando, Miami. They knew they wanted a team in Minnesota and they really wanted the original team in Charlotte. So that's why they did it, but then not to bog the league down with four new teams coming in all in one year. And there was already a lot of complaints of that launched the bulls dynasty because they, you know, got fat on expansion teams over a period of time. They went with two teams uh, came in, which were the Heat and the Hornets, and then two teams, one of was the Timberwolves and the Magic, uh, came in the next season. So we could see them stagger it like that. My guess is it's going to be only two teams, and then maybe we get two teams a few more years down the line. They spread it out a little bit. But if teams come in and teams are saying, hey, we'll give you 4 to $5 billion and, you know, hey, Sixteen billion in expansion fees, uh, and all these teams are making over five hundred million of the existing teams. They may say, "Yeah, let's 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 do this right now today." Is is there a cap? I mean, to the amount of teams that the league is wanting to bring in. I mean, I know you bring in two more that gets you to thirty-two. If you brought two more, that's up to thirty-four. But I mean, you you've put in some interesting cities here, some that I didn't even think of. Uh, one in my neck of the woods, Virginia Beach. I didn't even think that was uh, an, an option uh, until I read that there. So um, if all of these teams, including the, you know, the three outside of the United States, mm-hmm. all have pretty viable options and they all come in with, you know, decent bids of $4 billion to $5 billion, whatever it might be, is this uh, where – we could get closer to 40 teams in the league or is the league more cautious and wanting to just do the two that we pretty much know. And then maybe one international one still stateside. Yeah. I, I, I really believe it'll be two initially and it'll be Seattle and Las Vegas. I just did. Those are so far down the road with those two cities that everybody kind of knows Seattle's poured a ton of money into the arena and the surrounding area las vegas they're already building an arena and they don't even like for they don't even know what it's for yet and that tells me no they absolutely know what it's for it's for an nba team you've already got you know people like lebron james and Shaq saying they want to be involved in a las vegas team seattle it's like you know throw a rock and you're gonna hit a tech billionaire it feels like so they're you know you're gonna get uh you know a ton of money coming in that way and Seattle 
quite frankly, they never should have lost the Sonics in the first place. And that's, you know, I think a, a black guy, the NBA wants to try to fix here. So I think we're going to get those two. Then my guess is we wait probably two, three, four, five years. Then maybe they go with two international cities. Maybe by then it's, it's been determined Mexico city's ready. They're ready for an NBA team. They will have had the G league team for about a decade by that point uh, playing there. They'll have figured out a lot of the logistical stuff and maybe they get a team and then a second team in Canada. And then probably five, six, seven, eight years after that, you start looking again. Your problem is if you go with too many right now, the league is flush with talent. There are very good players at the ends of benches that don't get a chance to play. The G League has probably 40, 50, 60 guys who are NBA-level players uh, in, that are playing in the G League or uh, in conjunction overseas. So my guess is the league's probably saying, yeah, we can do two teams right now um, and not really hurt our product too bad. Because if you go too many, you're going to end up with teams that are just terrible. And then the next thing you know, it's like, wait, what are we doing here? Like, we have all these teams that stink. And now we're, you know, in this spot and, and that those teams will fail or you'll have the other teams that are kind of not well run right now that are in the league that because they've split the pie even further as far as talent goes, they fall even further behind. And, and Adam Silver said all along uh, in the current world, it's he wants 30 healthy franchises in the cities they're in. He doesn't want relocation. He doesn't want any of that stuff. So it's probably going to be let's do the initial expansion then let's look down the line for what it could look like later as far as maybe adding a handful of you know other teams. But my guess it would be in twos because when they, they brought in um, uh, the teams and they were sitting on an odd number, it just everything was a challenge. Schedules were a mess and all the stuff. So it'll probably be two, two teams come in. My guess is Seattle, Vegas. They'll do some restructuring of the conferences and what does all that look like? Maybe some restructuring of the schedule. We've already had hints of that going on with the uh the in-season tournament and the like so i i i think we're let's say three to five years out on two teams and then probably another after they start play probably another three to five years out for two more teams you make a good point with the league being flush with with talent and players not being able to play you've got players in the g league with bringing in say let's for all intents and purposes, the two teams, Vegas and Seattle, they bring those in. Is there any fear that with the rising salaries that are happening because of the rising cap, that those teams, they may be forced to make bad valued contracts because they those teams coming in would need to get to the floor? And I know you're going to be going through rules and that kind of stuff, but I sort of want to preface going into that with this question. Yeah, and it's a good question because everything works slightly different for the expansion teams. They work off a lower cap, at least historically. It's expected that would be the same. Um, They work off a lower cap for their first year, about 80% of what everybody else has to work with. So just to keep the math easy, if the salary cap came in at $100 million, their cap would be $80 million. They also work with then a much lower floor than everybody else does, so they make it easier for them to hit the bottoms, but they don't, they don't have the ability to go way over. Then it it increases after that. It comes up uh, into range of everybody else. So, so they have some handicaps against it because what they don't want to have happen is an expansion team comes in with basically an empty cap sheet. Um, 
they do their they could there is a theoretical way you could go through a um expansion draft and come away with no uh, salary commitments but they don't want that team to then say all right now we've got 150 million to spend and they sign the top three free agents and mm-hmm. then you know they're a power right away that that's not where the league wants so they put some of these handicaps but what what we generally have seen in the past, and I'll get into this as I get into some of the histories with these teams, they take on at least one or two bigger contracts, and either they're paid to do it, um, and that'll be part of the strategy um, uh, section when we get into that. Um, the team may say, hey, we want to clear out, let's say, for example, we just talked about the Bulls. If the Bulls are like, we really want to get off Zach Levine's contract, we will give you Seattle Supersonics expansion team a first-round pick to take Zach Levine's contract off our books. We've seen things like that in the past, and that's how they end up eating up some of their salary cap space and getting some of their contracts. So it, it's something you know we'll, we'll we'll expect to happen, and we'll cover that in detail as we get into some of the strategies for building the roster and all that stuff. Is there any fear with adding two teams with the scheduling component? I mean, I know, you know they've been trying to limit back-to-backs and, you know, giving more time and, you know, with the playoffs. Is there any fear of adding two more teams that that's that many more games um, for, for the league to have to figure out? And if the teams that are Vegas and Seattle, those are obviously going to go to the Western Conference. So, um, you know, there's going to have to be a shift from a Western Conference team then becomes an Eastern Conference team. How does that, you know, how does the league look at the scheduling and the conference realignment? You sort of talked about that before. And I'm again, I, this, I'm probably getting ahead of myself with the rules <laughs> and that kind of stuff. But I, I think it sort of fits into this uh, conversation of the initial, uh, you know, onset of the process. Yeah, I, I think these are... Um... These are great questions because this is all part of the decisions, right? On do we expand? Who do we award the teams to? I think right now, all you have to do is look and you can Google an NBA map and they'll show you on the map where all the franchises are located. There's not as many on the West Coast. And that leads me to believe that's another reason why Seattle and Las Vegas are going to get teams because I think the schedule's not going to change as far as I think they're very committed. We saw that even through the in-season tournament, they don't want to give up the 82 games, right? They're very, very committed to that 82 game, uh, you know, schedule. So what you do though, you add a couple more teams and what you eventually can do is you balance the travel out a little bit more because now the West coast teams, you're not playing a conference game. If you're the Portland trailblazers, against the New Orleans Pelicans, which is, you know, traveling literally halfway across the country uh, for them, if not more. So right now they have to do that generally twice a year. And now what you could do is a conference game could be against the Seattle Supersonics, which is, I mean, they're not going to, but they could take the bus over to Seattle from Portland and just, you know, play, play their game. So those are the kind of things where it balances things a little bit without having to change the actual um, structure of your schedule. You're just balancing it with that. I do think there is potential too. If you get into, uh, you know, 34 or more teams down the line, that's when you talk about a reduced schedule, because what happens is everybody's going to say, yeah, but nobody, you know, if we, if we go down to 
they did, I'm just pulling it out of the air, 70 game schedule. Yo, that's really tough. But you've introduced all these extra games by having these additional teams in there. So every game everybody else loses, they come in and your whole total number of games stays whole across the league. You can still fulfill all your TV requirements and everything. And then your product becomes slightly more valuable because it's 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 slightly more scarce, right? So you're in a spot where you can kind of get into some different uh you know stuff that way so there's a lot of game theory that you can play um with this and the way this will work and i think what the league will do is we've seen they'll be pretty progressive about the way they consider all these things and they'll try stuff and it doesn't really really work then they'll kind of get into all right let's try something a little bit different all right final thoughts on this part one of the expansion series before we transition to the in-season tournament which you've talked about yeah, just super excited to to be doing this whole project with, with this. It was uh it was fun to kind of get into the timeline stuff because and I had a lot of people reach back out to me, just readers and you know, even some media people like, Hey, that was really good because I get asked about it sometimes, like, hey, the league's gonna expand, you know, how quick can we see a team? Like this was really good to have it to refer back to. That yeah, it's not like it's gonna be, yeah, we're expanding, they'll start playing next year. I mean, they they could do that i suppose that's probably not going to happen but i'm really excited for now we've kind of laid out that history now i'm really excited to get into the rules and then the what's actually happened with these teams because i think that's going to be good um uh you know it's going to be good groundwork to lay and then of course it's always fun when we get into kind of mock anything uh mock protected lists and expansion drafts and all that that'll be a lot of fun um as we get into it and that'll be good to kind of be able to have that to look back on when the league actually does say, Hey, we are going to expand. We'll already kind of have at least a little bit of a base to work off of because then we'll start with a real, like, like more realistic mock uh, list to, to understand, all right, where is this going? And the other fun part is, the reporting around this stuff is way different now than it was, you know, 20 ish years ago when the Bobcats came in, because now, you know, you know, uh, the minute those protected lists, we know Woj and Shams and all those guys, they're going to have all, you know, all that information and we'll have it to be able to see it all versus in the uh, previous, it's a little harder to track that info down. Yeah. You had to wait until the next day in the uh, newspaper. <laughs> yeah and that's even if it was there and accurate like if you go and google it you can't find like the raptors and grizzlies ones except for a handful of you know teams like, like it's like somebody went went along and kind of gathered it all up and that's obviously though they came in in the early days of like the the, the, the internet being so widely used because i remember this is going to date me some but I remember sitting down and talking about the Grizzlies and Raptors expansion draft in the old AOL NBA chat room um, <laughs> when that was a thing. So, so that's how long ago that that was. All right. In-season tournament. We are on to the quarterfinals. The quarterfinal losers will make $50,000 per player. Semifinal losers get $100,000 per player. Runner-ups, two hundred k per player. And the champs get five hundred k per uh, per player Keith takeaways from the in-season tournament group play yep I think uh mission accomplished with the NBA so I think what they did was a um they wanted to juice the regular season in October November early part of December we all know that a lot of casual fans think the NBA 
for real, for all intents and purposes, starts on Christmas Day. They don't really pay attention while the football season's still going on. Then the fact that the NBA then came out and said, hey, we had great ratings uh, for this. Um, we had really good attendance for this. Our social media um, stuff was way up on the in-season tournament nights. It was great. The last night of it, a bunch of the games were blowouts, and everybody was still glued to it with a ton of drama because it was, all right, it's a blowout, but is it a big enough blowout? And you had that. The players clearly cared. The coaches clearly cared. And if their motivation was we want them, we want more money, fine, great, let's let's go for it. So I think mission accomplished so far, definitely tweaks and changes the NBA can make, changes they will make to this. I think going forward, it'll be much like the play-in tournament where it'll be, all right, we did it out of almost out of necessity in the bubble the first year. And then it was, this really kind of worked out pretty good. Here's how we're going to tweak and change this. And now everybody loves the play-in tournament. I think people are already coming around. And now that we're into the knockout round, I think people will like it even more. Yeah, from the financial side, the advertising for TV has to go up, you would think, knowing that uh, going into next season, those are going to be must-watch nights. So the, the, the premium for wanting advertisements on TV is going to go up from there. Like you said, the revenue from – you know, fans wanting to be at those games, especially, you know, the last game of the group play when whatever chaos can happen is going to happen. So it's a win-win. And as a first try at this, it's definitely a success. And I mean, I've heard tweaks here and there of people wanting to see this, wanting to see that. The one thing I saw you tweet about was the – automatic changes on the TV as you're watching as points are being scored or not sort of like for those that watch NASCAR, which I do uh, you know, as the playoffs are going on, you're seeing the jockeying up and down of the points in real time. I mean, that would be fantastic. Other than that, are there any changes that you would immediately tweak if you were commissioner to just take it to another level? Yeah, I would love to see more randomness so it's not just east and west still, just slightly differently broken up divisions because that's really what it was. And I get it, there's travel concerns and all that. But one of the things I would like to see them maybe try is, does it work better if we just take all 30 teams, you throw them all into a a, a pot, then you pull them out. And you pull out, you know, all right, first our head-to-head matchup is the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers. Yeah, All right. right now, Keith, you know, I, I, did you read my notes? <laughs> uh, well, a little bit. I'm, I'm even tweaking it even more on that. But yeah, I did see your note on this <laughs> because well, this what is like to where do I is... wanted to go was total. <laughs> let's have a group of death like the World Cup yeah, has, like, and either that or let's just do it like they do, you know, with the FA Cup in England, where you your your initial rounds are going to be a home and home where the teams play. And then it's if you go two and zero, you advance. Obviously, if you tie one and one, then your tiebreaker can be whoever scored the most points in the road mm-hmm. game. Um, is where it is. You'd have a lot of stuff there, and then you go right into a knockout round where it's again randomly drawn. And if it's only you're only talking one game, the travel concerns are you know they're they're pretty well mitigated because you'd have all right, this team's going to travel there, this team's going to travel there, and off you go in that first round. That gets you to fifteen teams. How do you get to the other two teams? until we expand. Um, but how do you get to the other two teams to have 16 in the knockout round 
involve the G League. Either the G League plays a tournament um, to getting kind of um, uh, qualifying two teams or or one team, or let the G League take their G League finals teams and have them play each other in a random tournament. And then you introduce them as the 16th team. And that gives you that kind of giant killer aspect, right? So, so you could get super behind. Like, man, I can't wait to see you know, the, uh, you know, Sioux, Sioux Falls Sky Force, you know, play the, you know, uh, LA Clippers. And I'm going to be rooting for the Sky Force in this. Cause that's, you know, that's what we do, right? We all do that in the NCAA tournament. And unless it's our school or you have a uh, financial stake in it, you're rooting for the underdog. Cause we all want the chaos. So I think there's little tweaks like that, that you could make, make it more like what these domestic cups are in both soccer and basketball mm-hmm. overseas. Um, that you could do to do this. But if we're going to do it like now, I think the group play, I get the idea of they don't want Portland and Miami in the same group where then Portland's having to go East three times or whatever it is, you know, to, to play these, these group games. But I think there's ways, ways you can make it work. And then once we got into the knockout round, I feel like the knockout round, cause you're talking a single home game for the higher seeded team. Then everybody's in Las Vegas anyway. The knockout round and beyond should not be east-west. That should just yes. be played out. Because because we're to get east versus west played out in the playoffs. Keith, you and, and I are on fine. the same same so, page here. This is where I wanted yeah. to go. Yeah. It's very, from a fan standpoint and, and me, I really disliked having the, the, the way they divvied it up because I thought they had a way of doing something very unique that not other leagues do where they could have a Lakers golden state final or a Milwaukee Boston final in this in season tournament. Whereas, you know, right now it's no different than a typical playoffs in the NBA, an East team versus the West team. I'm okay with the, the group stage uh, as far as being East for travel purposes and West for travel purposes. But it should be reseeding based on whatever metric. And if it happens that two West teams end up in the final or two East, so then be it. So be it. Um, to, to me, because of how travel works and the scheduling, I'd almost be okay if it was Portland having to play Miami because, you know, you could schedule it as the East Coast or West Coast swing. I know it yeah, adds if it's a little one more. Game, yeah, for sure. I know it adds a little more complication to it, but I think – by them having this in-season tournament, it opens up the doors for that, yes, randomness, but seeing teams that are, you know, like you said, Portland and Miami, a game that typically outside of Portland and Miami fans are going to watch it. If it's an in-season tournament game, more fans are going to want to watch that game as opposed to they have in the past. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I think if they can do a little bit more of that randomization in there to help it. And I've heard the the reverse, you know, I've heard, I, I want them to have it set in stone so that if it's, you know, Boston and uh, Washington wizards can make a, you know, a, a more rivalry or Boston and Philly are in the same group. And it's a, a rivalry over the next few years. I, I understand that, but there's already some rivalries already built into the whole season. So I'd rather see with this in-season tournament more of a true tournament style, 
to to even foster more of the rivalries if it happens to be that the randomization has you against the same team two or three years in a row then or you get that group of death we're going to watch that even more because it's going to be even more of a a 12 round knockout yeah yeah i'm with you fully i i have no uh problem with that there's ways you can make this work the uh you know, this is not the 1950s where the cross-country travel was happening on, you know, rickety airplanes or via train. Like, where, where you know, these guys are flying on private jets. And I realize it takes a toll on them, but there's ways we can make it work if they have to make a additional West Coast trip. But, yeah, I, my guess is we're going to see this evolve and change. And the NBA will continue to, you know, tweak it and try to make it better year over year. But it's clear it's not going away. It is going to stay. And I think one thing that's definitely going to stay is the vast majority of these games, because right now it's everything except for the in-season tournament final, doubling as a regular season game. Because what you're going to see is, for example, on the last night, Houston needed a win to advance in the their group. Dallas was already eliminated. But Dallas had lost a few games in a row going into that. And Dallas was trying to find their footing like, hey, we need a regular season win against the division opponent like we we need to you know get we need to get this win so even though dallas was out and we've seen this right in other examples of these kind of tournaments so a lot of times in the world cup if a team's going into the last game and they're out they just don't they they might play some different guys and play it out a little bit differently because it doesn't matter they're already out and eliminated so what we saw in this case was because this had the additional hey there's the regular season component we saw Dallas play it out and play very hard and ultimately won and knocked and kept Houston out from going. So I think that part of it uh, is going to be here to stay because that if nothing else, Hey, it counts as much as any regular season game counts. I don't think they want this existing fully solely as its own event, because then now then you are going to have teams that are going to say, there are no stakes for us. Guess what? Luca Kyrie, all you, you guys aren't playing because there's no reason to. Um, but where it did still count for the the other, you you still put them out there and you still run with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other the other tweak that, that I keep hearing is the the whole point differential situation. Um, you know, that's not something typically the NBA is uh, deals with from a, a meaningful standpoint. A- any final thoughts on how the point differential played out? Yeah, it's one of those things where it feels wrong and weird because it's weird, right? It's it's not something we generally really focus on very much in the NBA world. I thought Candace Parker made the best point on it. And Candace Parker's actually played in the, these domestic cups in women's leagues in Europe and overseas. So what she made the point was fans who are used to this from uh, men's and women's, both basketball and soccer overseas, they get it, and no nobody gets worked up. Fans don't, players don't, coaches don't, because they know, yeah, you got to kind of run it up a little bit because you're trying to advance. And and I think for the most part, everybody kind of got it. I just think for the players, it feels wrong for them to be, hey, we're up 20 and there's 30 seconds left. Let's run a play to get a three-pointer up. Like, they feel weird about that kind of situation. But I think 
once we're two, three, four years into this, everybody will be like, oh yeah, this is a tournament game. Like we got to try to win by as much as we can. And I think everybody will be like, yeah, that's different from a you know regular game on Tuesday night in January where it's like, all right, we're up the games one, just kind of make sure nobody gets hurt. I, I think, you know, that'll come into play and everybody will start to figure that stuff out over the next uh, few years of this. And again, they're going to have the opportunity because it's not going away. All right, let's finish off with two sales in the NBA. Mark Cuban first says that he is leaving Shark Tank, and then the next day he says he's selling uh, stake in the Mavericks. He originally purchased the Dallas Mavericks for $285 million back in January 2000, and he sold the majority stake this week for $3.5 billion. And uh, based on the reports, he's going to retain his – retain some shares in the Mavericks and still be the overseeing president of basketball operations. Thoughts on this first sale, Keith? Yeah, it's very interesting that last part where he's not going to be the majority owner, but he's still going to kind of run things. And to me, that's almost like having that silent partner then, right? That is, you know, they're in it, but they're not going to, you know, they're basically, here's a bunch of money. I I have to question how long does that last? Because does that turn into, you know, all right, hey, I'm going to transition you into the league. I'll really still run things as you're kind of getting your footing and learning. I'll get us through the TV deal, maybe through expansion. And then I'll kind of, you know, see this or is this Cuban saying, hey, I want something to do where I'm heavily involved and I want to stay heavily involved. And there's even been some suggestion that he sold for slightly less that maybe getting everything he could have gotten, maybe he could have gotten $4 billion had he basically said, hey, I'm going to sell the majority stake and I'm going to walk away uh, from this. Um, Did he lower his valuation because it was, hey, this comes with me still staying in charge. So we'll see. Yeah, I thought it was kind of funny. A lot of people were like, left Shark Tank, sold the Mavs, and they thought the next day was going to be, I'm going to run for president in, you know, four years. And that didn't end up happening. So now people are kind of like, huh, that's interesting. Like, what's going on there? Like, well, what is happening with that? Could that be something he does down the line? But he already said, I'm not running next year, which that makes sense. It's very late in the game. Um, but that, but yeah, that part of him retaining control of the basketball ops is weird. But the bigger takeaway for me is $3.5 billion. Like, this is now the range we're in. It's, you know, three to $4 billion is what these teams, you know, are worth to kind of depending on the team and where they're at and what the uh, circumstances are. And that's, you know, we took what, 23 years ish, almost 24 years. Uh, I don't know. That's what 10 times his investment or more if I'm doing that math. Right. So that's pretty good business. If you can do it right. Like I'm thinking of some of these legacy franchises if they ever sell, we're going to be like, yeah, bought the team for $10 million. And now it's worth 10 billion down the line somewhere. We're, we're definitely going to get one of those at some point. Yeah, we will. It is definitely interesting. I, I'm curious uh, if you retain the shares and, uh, you know, the basketball operations for the fact that he gets his money now, but still retains and then can sell again if he wants to where, the influx of the TV money coming in and expansion that we just talked about uh, comes in. And then his valuation of the shares that he has left goes up even more. So uh, 
who knows? We'll find out as time goes on what his true plans are. But, you know, it's just interesting and was money news. And then the Pacers dropped yesterday so, saying that they've sold for $3.47 billion, if I have that correct. Uh, so so what's up with the that Pacers? Was a, the $3.47 billion was a valuation, and they sold a minority stake. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so, so what are the logistics with that? Was this something that was on the table, or did this come out of uh, left field? It didn't come out of left field. It was Stephen Rails, and I believe I'm uh, pronouncing that right. Um, they, they're like a he's a science and technology guy. Um, you 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 may know the name. I didn't know the name. Um, but he basically he had already owned five percent of the Pacers. So what happened was uh, he agreed to buy fifteen percent. So now he's going to be up to twenty percent of the Pacers um, that he'll own. Uh, Herb Simon, who everybody, I think if you don't know him, you know him because you've been in a mall at some point, I'm sure. And that's what he was. They were the Simon malls uh, people. So, and this is an example. He bought the Simons, bought the Pacers in 1983 for $11 million. And now they're valued at 3.47. So 3.5 billion, basically same as the Mavericks just went for. Um, in this sale. So, so that was the value. So 15% he, he bought in uh, rails did brings them up to 20. There's also, a uh, if the Simon family ever chooses to sell, um, it sounds like rails could be uh right. A first refusal to buy out the rest and own the team, you know, fully, um, which generally how that works is they say you have X amount of time, whether it's 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever it is to, buy us out or then we go into a wider sale process. If that's where we want to go. We saw that similar ish play out with the Memphis Grizzlies um, uh, in recent years in their ownership, um, you know, kind of transition. So this is where, where we're at now. This is what team, you know, three and a half billion for these two teams, um, you know, and they're in different worlds a little bit. Dallas, a much bigger market, Indiana, a much smaller market, but, you know, still three and a half billion dollars is tells me, you know, the league's in great shape because, you know, we, I know to some extent we have this uh, opinion that these billionaires, they just buy these things as toys. And that's kind of what they do a little bit, but they're not throwing good money after bad money here. They're basically saying, no, now's the time to get in and buy in. And I think we're also seeing some of these ownership groups say, yeah, it's time to maybe, well, let's cash out a little bit and may make a little bit of money here on some of this stuff. Some of it was forced in recent years and other ones were just, nah, it's time for me to you know, walk away from my investment here. So this is going to be something we'll continue to track over the next several years. Cause I think, especially once the TV money comes in, I think we may see a flood of old school ownership changes where it is, Hey, I can now sell the team and get my family uh, life you know, this is life-changing money for the rest of their lives. You know, generations will be covered in my family uh, here. And I think we may see some of that change up here in a little bit. All right, Keith, what is next in the NBA and for your posts? Yeah, so we're at kind of the time of the year where we're letting somewhat the news cycle dictate a little bit. That's kind of where the Bulls uh, piece came out of. So we'll we'll have you know that if if necessary, uh, will something else come up? But uh, two things that are definitely on the list. We're gonna get get continue with the expansion series. So next will be how does it all work now? Now they've they've picked the teams. What happens next? Right? Like what 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 is 
how does an expansion draft work? What does their salary caps work like? What is all that? Uh, you know, what are all these rules for these teams as they come in? So that'll be the next uh, piece that'll come up and that, that'll post uh, here soon. And then because we're going into early trade season, one of the things we like to do is one, a little explainer on what does early trade season mean? And then in addition to that, just because it's a lot of fun is who are some of the names to watch? Who are some of the players that are uh, very heavily in the media cycle that they could be traded in the next couple of months? Because we're, I know this sounds bonkers, Scott, when I say this, we're roughly two months from the NBA trade deadline, which sounds crazy. Like, it's like, how is it already here? But that's just how quick the, the calendar moves in the NBA. It absolutely does. Looking forward to the ex- expansion series and getting into more of the uh, trade restrictions being lifted and potentially some more trades in the NBA happening. Thanks, Keith. If you're looking, I appreciate to, it. Thanks. Yep. If you're looking to follow Keith at Keith Smith NBA uh, for Keith Smith, I am Scott Allen. Thanks for listening to the NBA Next Podcast.